Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me as we open God's Word and study an important subject for the end times. As the prophecies rapidly unfold, we are aware that we need Jesus more than anything else to deal with the coming challenges on God's people. But we also need Jesus for our own salvation. I hope and pray that today's message will especially help you in your walk with Christ. It's one thing to know the doctrines and the prophecies. It's quite another to know Christ. The prophecies open the way for us to understand Christ, for they're about Him. Before we begin, let me tell you that our daily briefings are yours for the asking if you haven't been receiving them. Just email and request them and we'll put you on the free subscription for our daily briefings that bring you little news items you might have missed cast in their prophetic context. Please continue to pray for Highwood Health Retreat. We're now seeing more guests and have a more stable flow of income. I'm thankful also that the Lord is providing staff and volunteers to build on the good foundation we have laid by the grace of God. Your gifts and support in prayer have been such a blessing. And I would mention that we are having our first Keep the Faith camp meeting at Highwood January 6 through 10, 2016. Daniel Pell is the main speaker. You may wish to join us if you live in Australia. But others from other countries are also welcome. You need to book soon, however. Accommodation is limited. Amaru Water Gardens Health Retreat is also making some progress. We've submitted our proposal to the local council for approval of our change of use authority so that we can start our health retreat there soon. We're praying that the Lord will impress hearts to lower our fire rating from high to medium. This would mean much less in terms of renovations and costs that would have to be done. Pray for this. It's now in their hands. And we believe that God will work in our behalf. But He knows what is best, so please pray. Please check out our YouTube channel. You'll find videos there that you can watch, and also you can see our interviews and other material as well. Also, you can go online and see our iTunes channel library. You'll find all of our sermons there. They can be downloaded for you to listen to and play on your device. Most of all, thank you for your prayers, friendship, and support for Keep the Faith Ministry. It means a lot to us. Our work has expanded so quickly that we are astonished at what God is doing. We'll keep you informed on prophecy and on our progress in God's work. Before we begin our message today, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Christ who loves us with a love so powerful that it reached down from heaven and brought us salvation through Jesus Christ. We do very much need his transforming grace in our lives. We want to live for Jesus in these last days, and I pray that you will guide us as we study your word again today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John. Here is a story that shines brightly down through the ages right to our own time. There are many today who need to understand this story and the personal and practical applications. 
I hope you'll be greatly blessed by this presentation. As Jesus ministered to the multitudes, some of them did the same thing that many do today. They got into a discussion over whether Jesus was the Messiah. Many believed on Him because of the miracles that He did, but in verse 26, some pointed out that Jesus worked boldly. But lo, He speaketh boldly, and they, the church leaders, say nothing unto Him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? And verse 32 says that the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning Him. They were disturbed that Jesus threatened their little spiritual and temporal kingdom. And then the Bible says, And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. But the officers could not. In their presence, Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And being in the happy presence of Jesus was like taking a long, cold drink of water on a very hot, dry day after a long walk in the heat of the sun. It was so refreshing that it brought relief to many a sin-burdened soul. The Pharisees had nothing spiritual to offer the people. They were as dry as the hills of Gilboa. They would stand in the pulpit and in the synagogue and go through the formalities of their religion without giving the people the living water. Jesus, on the other hand, always had something for the people that was wet with the dew of heaven, full of meaning and encouragement. The contrast was so stark that the people flocked to Christ to hear what he had to say. Verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. These words amaze the people because Jesus was telling them how to be a blessing to others as well as to themselves. He was offering them life, life they could impart to others. Isaiah had predicted this when he spoke of Christ by saying, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. That's Isaiah 55, verse 4. The commander of heaven was to give water to the thirsty. Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. That's Isaiah 55, 1 and 3. How do you think the Pharisees received the word about the wonderful works of Jesus? Do you think they rejoiced when the sick were made well and the demons were cast out? Do you think they were pleased when the dead were raised to life? Oh, no. They were very unhappy with his behavior. They had criticisms. They had accusations. Jesus had come to bless the world with the light of his heavenly presence. But those in charge were deeply angered by what Jesus did because it drew the people away from them. They thought they had a corner on the spiritual market and felt that Jesus intruded on it. But heaven had sent Christ to overthrow the teachings of the Pharisees and place the confidence of the people in the word of God. Did you notice that verse in John 7:38 that says, As the scripture hath said, Jesus was continually undermining the authority of men and placing the confidence of the people on the authority of the word of God. This was his mission. Do you think this needs to be done today? Well, some thought that they had better get the church leaders' opinions before taking a stand for or against Christ. 
They didn't want to be in opposition to the leaders, and it was vitally important to them that Jesus was in harmony with the leaders. Otherwise, they would not be acceptable either if they took the opinions of Jesus to themselves. They did not want to be put out of the synagogue because of an association with someone that was not approved. Now let us come to chapter 8 and begin with verse 1. At the end of a long, tiring day, full of conflicts and controversies, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, the Bible says. This was his practice. He would find a retired spot where he could pray and commune with his Father in heaven. He often went outside of the city on the Mount of Olives when he was working in Jerusalem. Perhaps his retirement to the Mount was partly because no friend dared offer him his home in Jerusalem, either in kindness or out of courage, and give him a night's lodging. His persecutors had houses of their own to go to, but not Christ. Perhaps he left the city because he did not want to be caught up in a popular tumult in the night. He knew that the rabbis were capable of stirring up the multitudes, especially in the darkness of night. He knew they were planning to take him at night. Friends, it is prudent to go out and away from danger to avoid peril whenever we can do it without letting go of our duty. And Christ's example is instructive. During the day, he worked openly in the temple and willingly exposed himself. He was under special protection when doing his duty. But in the night when the people were asleep and he had no other work to do for them, he retired to the country and sheltered himself there as inconvenient as it may have been. And there he would pray and commune with God and seek his strength for the next day's labors. After a night of prayer, Christ came back to the temple. The Bible says in verse 2 of chapter 8 that it was early in the morning. Jesus was a diligent teacher of righteousness and would start out early. And though he taught the day before, he would teach again today. He was continually working for his Father's kingdom teaching and preaching in season and out of season. Why did Jesus come to the temple? It wasn't so much because it was a sacred place, but because that's where the people were that needed to hear what he had to say. And his words and teachings were rich with the dew of heaven after a night of prayer in the garden on the Mount of Olives. Jesus also, by teaching here in the temple, would approve of the solemn assemblies for worship. They don't always have to be in the sacred places designated for such worship. But the point is, he approves of them. The Bible says that Jesus sat down to teach as if he was going to be there for a while. He intended to speak to the multitudes that would come and hear him. Here it is in chapter 8, verse 2. And early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Friends, it is early in the morning when you learn the richest lessons of truth from Jesus. Go and hear him early. O God, says the psalmist David, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary... Notice that we see God's power and glory early in the morning, before our busy day gets started. There in the dawning light of a new day, we learn of God first. We pray and listen to His voice. And just as worshipers started coming to the temple that day, there was Jesus teaching them. Friends, if you want to experience the grace of Christ, come in the early morning, while the morning stillness will help you hear the voice of God. 
and will prepare you for the challenges of the new day. The early morning is when Jesus is especially there to bless you and strengthen you. It's a time of day for refreshing your soul with the water of life from the true and living fountain. And when the day's work is to be done for the Lord, you need to start early in the morning so that your soul is ready for the temptations and aggressions of the evil one. When Jesus entered the temple, something happened that disturbed the rabbis and Pharisees. The scripture says, And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Can you imagine that? All the people came unto him. Many of the people were from outside the city and had come there to attend the Feast of Tabernacles and, of course, the Day of Atonement. They hoped for one more gracious sermon from Jesus before returning to their homes. Even though he came to the temple early, they came to hear him. They did not want to hear what the Pharisees and the priests had to say. They could hear them anytime. But it was more than that. The priests and rabbis had nothing to give them spiritually. And the people were aware that Jesus' words were like water to a thirsty soul. They yearned to hear what Jesus had to say. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was a joyous time after the Day of Atonement. It was a prophetic type of the rejoicing after sin and sinners will be no more at the end of the great controversy with Satan. What a fitting symbol of God's power and love in overcoming the enemy. This prophetic feast is still to be fulfilled, though all the others have no further meaning since Christ has been the antitype of them all. So even though the people knew that listening to Jesus would displease the rulers, they flocked to him anyway and listened intently as he spoke earnestly to them. This angered the rulers. They felt themselves besieged and threatened by Jesus. Yet Jesus wanted them to hear him too. Most of those that came to hear Jesus were not wealthy men or men of notoriety. Yet Jesus taught his lessons for everyone, including the leading men and rulers of the people. And though they were angry at him, they came and listened too. This was not the first day Jesus taught in the temple. He had been there many times before. The rulers knew he would be there that morning. And after all, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, and the people were required to attend but these leaders entered into a conspiracy against him and hatched a deadly plot to get rid of him. They knew a woman who had serviced their secret desires in the past, and some of them knew how to find her. In spite of the joy of the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was often made an occasion for sin. Some of them may have sinned with her against their own wives and against God. She was quite voluptuous and attractive but she was very insecure and very vulnerable to male overtures. She'd actually been led purposefully into sexual sin by some of them. Repeated compromise had weakened her, and now she could not resist them. Every time it happened, she felt like a filthy, evil woman. She knew it wasn't right. She'd brushed it off, though. Some of the men she saw came to expect her to yield. Her sins were many, and she felt condemned in the eyes of the Pharisees, even though she had been with some of them. How would God accept such a sinner as she? How could she ever have a home with the righteous in heaven? There just seemed to be no way out of this evil cycle of sin. But Jesus yearned for her soul. He loved her not in the way of these men, but as a heavenly friend. He longed to give her victory over her sins. She heard about Jesus forgiving sins and wondered if her sins were too great to be forgiven. After all, there were many, and they were serious. 
She was afraid to come to Jesus because she would have to come privately. After all, her sins, though they were grievous, were not that well known. But coming to him privately would appear in the wrong way. Satan told her that she had no hope and that it was no use going to Christ. He couldn't forgive her anyway. Her sins were too evil. Now the Pharisees agreed to use her to get to Christ. They agreed that one of them would get her to meet him, and then at the right time, they would catch them in the act. So one evening, she was contacted by one of her regular clients who asked her to come to a place where they often met. She went to him knowing nothing of what was about to happen to her. At the most vulnerable moment, they were discovered. The woman saw the very ones with whom she was intimately acquainted accuse her of sexual immorality and drag her early in the morning to the temple for prosecution. The Romans let the Jews stone people for adultery. The woman was terrified. These men were about to publicly expose her in the midst of the assembly, in front of Christ as her judge of all things. Imagine the shock surprise of the people watching and listening. The rulers intended this because they wanted all the people to watch Christ fall into the trap set for his feet. His words would condemn him one way or another, they thought. And the more public the exercise, the better. The woman had heard about Jesus, but she thought she was too much of a sinner to be forgiven. Such a pure man would never be able to be interested in her dilemma. But then she heard something that gave her a glimmer of hope. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verse 15. And one of her friends told her a strange story about how Jesus even went openly and boldly into the home of Levi Matthew, a tax gatherer, and ate with a whole group of them. The Pharisees mocked and scoffed him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Here it is. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in Levi Matthew's house, Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And she was a sinner, according to the priests and rabbis. Maybe there was hope, but she brushed it aside, thinking he would never give her the time of day. Yet the word on the street was that he was interested in these sinners and enjoyed their friendship. People even said that he was so kind and so friendly with everyone, including the lepers who were the sinners of sinners. Maybe he could help her get out of this despicable lifestyle. Maybe there was hope after all. But her mind must be playing tricks on her. She'd gone too far, she thought, too far to be received by Jesus. The Pharisees had even made that clear to her in their own pious way. They claimed that if he ate with this kind of people, he must be one of them and did not deserve their approval. There were sins that God could not forgive, right? She asked herself. You see, it was all about approval of the authorities. If religious authorities were opposed to something, then it must not be right. Defensiveness and protectiveness twisted the love of God so badly that common people like her felt as if there was no real chance of reaching the standard. I have to realize that there is no hope for me, she said to herself. Get a grip. Be realistic. My sins are too great for me to be saved. But one day another friend told her that Christ forgave sinners. The idea that Christ was a friend of sinners was so radical that it was hard to believe. 
The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. That's Matthew eleven nineteen. If Jesus was a friend of sinners, maybe he would be my friend too, she wondered. Maybe he can help me out of this sinful lifestyle. Maybe there's hope for this terrible, destructive cycle. Maybe he can help me overcome my need for male approval and love so that I don't fall into sexual relations with every man that comes along. Jesus understood this woman. He always understands a heart that's burdened by sin and wants freedom from its slavery. He's so loving and kind that he will forgive even the worst sins and corrupt lifestyle. He wants fellowship with the worst of sinners. It's a great joy to him to free them from Satan's grip. It brings glory to his name. It magnifies his grace and love. The priests and rabbis had been arguing with him the previous day. He had given them evidence of his divinity by exposing their plot to kill him, which they thought he did not know. They were breaking the law, which they professed to keep. Hypocrites. They did not like being exposed, so they reacted by saying, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? They tried to insinuate that Jesus' miracles and wonderful works were the result of the work of an evil spirit, but they were under the evil one, not Christ. And like a flash of light, Christ revealed his divinity to them by exposing their plot. And as their anger grew, they again laid plans to arrest him. If he remained at liberty, they feared that the people would be drawn away from them, the established leaders. They had to silence him if they could. And now, today, they were going to trap him so that he would be ensnared by his own words. As Jesus returned to the temple early in the morning after a night of prayer and refreshment with his father in the garden on the Mount of Olives, he began teaching the people. The scriptures say in John 8 verse 2 that all the people came to him. It was as if Jesus was a magnet. They weren't interested in what the priests and rabbis were saying or doing. They were interested in what Jesus was saying and doing, and this was the real issue. It was a conflict between Christ and the church leaders. Their authority was under stress, and they were threatened even by His presence. Many of them had felt the conviction of the truth of His words, but had squashed the feelings and intelligent recognition of Christ as the Messiah. They turned their backs because of what it would cost them. They would lose their worldly standing and would be despised and rejected by the multitudes. Yet he attracted the multitudes, and this made them angry and fearful. When men in power are fearful, they will go to no end to persecute those whom they fear. Think what it will be like in the last days, when the nations of the world will be fearful of God's people. Once sufficiently demonized, there will be mass hysteria about them. And if the disasters and calamities that will come upon the planet are a result of those that practice true worship, and they refuse to follow the beast and keep his day of worship, the people will not want them around. They will easily think that in order to purge them, they must be hunted down and killed. Think about it. Only the angels of God will be able to protect them ultimately, and that is how many of them will survive. Ruthlessly, the offending, terrified, and crying woman was dragged to the feet of Jesus, still in her nightclothes, and roughly thrown in front of him. But my friends, isn't that the place where we should be, at the feet of Jesus? When we sin, we must repent. The only escape from eternal consequences is to go to the feet of Jesus. Satan is the accuser, but if we are at the feet of Jesus, 
we'll be safe from his accusations. It's at the feet of Jesus that we receive forgiveness and healing from the very sins that Satan has led us to commit and then turns around and accuses us. It's at the feet of Jesus that we gain our defense against the adversary, and it's at the feet of Jesus that we can find true self-worth and a clear understanding of his love and the cost of his sacrifice. Master, they said with a certain sneer, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. That's John 8, verse 4. Notice that they call him master when the day before they called him a deceiver. Jesus recognized their hypocrisy. And friends, if you are in Christ, he will show you what you need to know when you're about to be trapped in some adversary's net. In order to dispel any suggestion that this was a rumor, they made it clear that there is no doubt that she's guilty of a crime against heaven and against church laws. She was caught in the act. Yet it was her accusers who led her into sin in the first place. Friends, Isn't it in mercy that God often exposes us so that we'll not continue in it and be hardened against Him? Our sins are set before us not for condemnation, but for conviction, so that we can turn and repent. Verse 5 says, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? And the implications were serious. You who pretend to be a teacher come from God to do away with the law of Moses and to replace it with a new one. Who do you think you are? They were tempting him so that they could have occasion to accuse him. That's verse 6. They had misinterpreted the law of Moses and the love of God. Now, as if in, in triumphal victory, they posed a question sure to take Christ into conflict with himself or into conflict with the Romans. Either way, they would be able to discredit him and get rid of him. They fully expected that he would acquit her. And by this, they would discredit him in the eyes of the people by saying that he came to destroy the law and the prophets. And as a friend of sinners, he was consequently in favor of sin. And if he would let the sin go unpunished, they would represent him as a patron of sin. He would not be respected by the people if he would countenance sin and yet be a prophet who should be strict and pure in his own life. Well, with great interest, the people who had been listening to Jesus wondered what he would say. All voices were silent, and all ears were turned to how he would respond to this question. Would he say the right thing, or would he say the wrong thing? It was clear to them that Christ was in a dilemma, between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. And if he answered that she should not be stoned, they would have been able to accuse him of being disloyal to the law of Moses and the church. If he said that she should be stoned, Then they could accuse him to the Romans, and they would take him off their hands. Many among Christ's hearers, who were dwellers at Jerusalem, and who were not ignorant of the plots of the rulers against him, felt themselves drawn to him by an irresistible power. The conviction pressed upon them that he was the Son of God, but Satan was ready to suggest doubt. And for this, the way was prepared by their own erroneous ideas of the Messiah, and his coming. That's Desire of Ages, page 457. These people were aware that Christ was dealing with men who had no regard for human life. They were concerned only about their own power, and some of them secretly hoped that Christ would overcome them. Jesus looked with pity on the scene. Here was a trembling woman, 
shamed by the very men who led her into sin. Here were the hardened faces of the Jewish dignitaries, devoid of sympathy and love. Jesus knew their wicked hearts, and he clearly understood their scheme and that it was aimed at him. They were not seeking justice for the woman. They were trying to find a way to undermine his heavenly teachings and his powerful influence. They were very angry and could not be reasoned with. They were so devoid of human pity that they would not accept mercy, nor would they accept justice for that matter. They were after Christ. They wanted him dead, and they could hardly conceal their rage. But an unseen power put a limit on their rage, saying to them, Thus far thou shalt go, and no farther. Jesus knew the heart of the woman standing in disgrace and shaking in fear before him. And he longed to give her peace and forgiveness of her sins. He knew that she hungered for peace and victory, but felt that she could not ever get it. She was in the vortex of a deadly controversy between Christ and the church leaders, and her life hung in the balance. What would Jesus say? What would he do? Jesus did not answer the question directly. He stooped down and began writing in the dust of the ground with his finger, as if he heard them not. Through her tear-filled eyes, the woman tried to see what he was doing as he traced his finger in the dirt and the sand. Did she see the word adultery there? Was he writing about her? These wicked men thought they had caught Jesus and that he was avoiding them because he could not answer the question. But their curiosity got the best of them too. They couldn't help but crane their necks to see what he was doing but they did not understand the nature of his actions. They pressed him to respond to their question. What do you say, Master? They had put their own reputation on the line to bring this adulteress to Jesus for judgment. It was him against them, and they put enormous pressure on him to give them a quick answer, hopefully without thinking of the consequences, and they would get him. But Jesus continued writing in the sand. They should have assumed that Christ's delay in answering them was a warning to their intentions. Eventually, he stood up, looked the conniving rabbis in the eyes, and said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. The woman flinched and whimpered, thinking that a stone would go flying and hit her at any moment. After all, these rabbis represented themselves as righteous and everybody else as sinners. But no stones came. The Pharisees were thinking about what Jesus said. They knew in their own hearts that they were utterly sinful. By giving the one without sin permission to stone her first, he had actually prevented any of them from doing so. These men were filthy, and their conniving had led her into sin in the first place. Here's a statement from Desire of Ages, page 461. These would-be guardians of justice had themselves led their victim into sin that they might lay a snare for Jesus. Their aims were to kill Jesus, and they would kill a woman caught in adultery if necessary to get at him. They had already demonstrated their hatred toward Christ. How could any of them claim that he was without sin? Only Jesus was without sin. He was the only one in that crowd that would have been free to cast the first stone. But what did he do? He loved the woman so much, he wanted to save her from her sins so much that there was no way that he was going to pick up a stone. Yes, the woman deserved the death penalty for her sin. She was like poison to the nation. 
Sensuality was a great sin because it is so deceptive and addictive. If women like her were permitted to go unpunished, there would be no deterrent to all manner of evil and wickedness that would descend upon the nation. She deserved to die. She deserved the just penalty of the law. She deserved to be removed from the nation. She knew it. The rabbis and Pharisees knew it. And Jesus knew it. Yet not one stone was cast at her. Not even a small one. No one moved even to pick up a stone when Jesus said those words, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Just put yourself in her place. Think about your own sin, my friends. Do you deserve to die? Yet Jesus does not lift up a stone of accusation against you. He loves you with an everlasting love and longs to reconcile with you. He knows that if He, the Savior of mankind, were to accuse you, you would turn from Him in anger and disgust. He knows that He must appeal to your heart with forgiveness, not justice. We all understand justice. We all know the result of our evil behavior. Punishment and death is the only end. Yet Jesus stoops down to lift you up and restore your manhood or your womanhood. He longs to remove your filthy garments of self-righteousness and replace it with His robe of purity and holiness. Oh, that it was as easy to see this as it is to see the justice. But Jesus took your punishment for you. He suffered on the cross for you. He fulfilled the demands of justice on your behalf. He took all your sins on His heart. He can now legitimately offer you freely of His grace, which is designed to free you from the shackles of sin. Yes, the amazing thing is that His grace is free. It will change your life and give you forgiveness, which is justification, and free you from the power of sin so that you sin no more, which is sanctification. It is truly wonderful to have peace with God and be restored to His favor as His child. If you accept it, you are free. The terrified woman had long before wished that she could come to Jesus and learn of Him. Now here she was in the worst of circumstances, and Jesus had just pronounced the death sentence, so she thought. But Jesus was actually in the process of freeing her from her sins. He acknowledged the law and its justice and righteousness, but another end would be for her than its demands. Christ was going to forgive her and let her go free. Jesus was going to change her life by His power. Look at John chapter 8, verse 8. It says, And again He stooped down and wrote on the ground. The straining to see what Jesus was doing intensified. These wily church leaders began to realize that Jesus was answering their question by His writing in the sand. They were full of sin and uncleanness. Jesus made it plain to them in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Listen to it. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Have you noticed that the ones who are most zealous to defend the law are 
often the very ones who indulge themselves in it. But it's not pleasant to see one's own secret sins exposed before the whole community. Remember that there were a lot of the common people watching as intently as themselves. One by one, they realized that he knew their individual and particular sins with the most painful and accurate and starkest reality. He was writing them in the sand from the oldest first to the youngest. Their faces went white in shock. How did he know? They must have thought. The Holy Spirit added the weight of guilt upon each of them as they read his words in the dust concerning their own wickedness and deeds of darkness. Listen to what John 8 verse 9 says. John 8 verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Their consciences were smitten. Conscience is God's deputy in the soul. And one word from Him will set it to work. Even the most conceited and arrogant cannot escape the condemnation of conscience. So they left, one by one, as if to sneak away without being noticed. They quietly pulled out of the debate. Jesus had turned the conviction of the prisoner on the prosecutors. And with the net that they had spread for Christ, they caught their own feet. They came to accuse him, but they ended up accusing themselves. Though Christ agreed that she should be prosecuted, he appeals to their consciences that they are not fit to be her prosecutors. They were executing her by their tongues. Would they be willing with their hands to execute her when they were guilty of perhaps even worse sins? You see, these men had presumed to judge her when they were every whit as guilty of sins as black as hers, namely hatred and execution of the Son of God. They should never accuse others when they're guilty of similar sins. After all, who at one time or another in their lives isn't guilty of some form of fornication? Jesus said in Matthew 5:28 that even to look upon a woman in lust is breaking the seventh commandment. One by one, these evil conniving men saw their own sins written in the street below their feet. One by one, they found excuses to depart quickly. Oh, my wife needs me to pick up something at the grocery store. I'll see you fellas later. Oh, I have an appointment I I've got to get to. Oh dear, I'll be late for my child's bar mitzvah if I don't go now. One by one, they quietly departed, not wishing to make a scene and drawing attention to themselves. Listen to this statement of the inconsistency of the Jewish rabbis in their behavior from Desire of Ages, page 461. With all their professions of reverence for the law, these rabbis, in bringing the charge against the woman, were disregarding its provisions. It was the husband's duty to take action against her, and the guilty parties were to be punished equally. The action of the accusers was wholly unauthorized. Jesus, however, met them on their own ground. The law specified that in punishment by stoning, the witnesses in the case should be the first to cast a stone. Those who wish or presume or are obliged to accuse others should look first upon themselves and be harder on, the, on sin in themselves than in others. That is vitally important if ever we're going to discern the true wickedness of sin. We must be tender and kind to the ones who have committed sins. 
Keep in mind, the snuffers of the tabernacle were made of pure gold. If you wish to snuff out sin, make sure you are also of a similar character. If you are guilty of sin, then you cannot accuse others. You can pray for them, you can admonish them, but you cannot accuse them. Christ came to our world to bring sinners to repentance. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, Luke 9.56. Christ determined to bring all His listeners that day to repentance. And the woman by His mercy, the priest by revealing that He knew all their sins, and the common people through witnessing the whole glorious scene. The scene had first looked bad for the woman and for Christ, but in the end it was turned to show that Christ was the victor and the woman was set free. How much more did Christ want to set those rabbis free? But they would not. They sought to ensnare Him, but He sought to convince and convert them. Eventually, when no one was left to accuse her, Jesus had lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Notice that Jesus lifted up himself. When Jesus is lifted up, all accusations and allegations are gone. No one is left but the sinner and Jesus. And once Jesus has pointed out the guilt of the evil one who accuses his children, the wicked one must flee. These leaders were representatives of Satan. They were inspired by his own ideals. They reflected his image in their hatred of Christ. They had yielded to the temptation to resent the influence and power of Christ, and now they wanted to kill him. Jesus accomplished a number of things by his action. He had not set aside the law of Moses, which was utterly important to these legalistic rabbis. He had not infringed on the Roman power, so they could not accuse him of that. And he had exposed their own guilt to each accusative soul. They trembled lest the hidden iniquity of their lives should be laid open to the multitude, and one by one, with bowed heads and downcast eyes, they stole away, leaving their victim with the pitying Savior. And that's also from Desire of Ages, page 461. The last thing they wanted was their sins exposed by Christ to the multitude. That would totally discredit their claim to righteousness, and it would cause the people to despise them and disregard their counsels. Jesus had written their sins in the dust of the pathway, where busy feet would quickly wipe them out. He was merciful to the rabbis, too. Now, isn't that incredible? Not everyone could read those words. They were not cut into the cobblestones. They were not blazoned on billboards and signs. No, they were where they would quickly disappear. Jesus is not anxious to expose anyone. He's not willing that any should be discouraged by their sinful lives. Yet He does expose our sins to ourselves so that we can see ourselves as we are and repent and be converted. He must explain the gravity of our own selfish and wicked hearts in order for us to run to Him for forgiveness, cleansing, and righteousness. Jesus could have condemned the sinful woman. His spotless purity would have shown in marked contrast to her filthy life. Yet He drew her to Himself. He did not spurn her or turn from her, leave her on the street without assurance of His saving love. He forgave her for all her many and grievous sins. And through her tears, and as her terror of being stoned to death subsided, 
She said, No man, Lord. That's verse 11. It is those whose cause is brought to Jesus and who stand before him condemned. It is those whose lives have been lived in full awareness of their sinfulness and wretchedness that are most ready to receive his forgiveness. Those who've grown up in the church and have never left it have the hardest time to understand their immorality and wretchedness. And when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats in the parable, he is speaking of the church people who think they're saved when they're not. The clamors of the law are silenced by the blood of Jesus applied to your record of sin. We are then left standing alone with Jesus. Now we have only Jesus to deal with because with Him all judgment is committed. My friends, let the gospel of Christ rule you. Let its power free you from the power of sin. Secure yourself with Christ. No one condemns the one whom Jesus forgives, my friends. Think about it. Jesus is the refuge of penitence. The devil's demands are reproved and rebuked. The enemy is no longer the master of the forgiven soul. Jesus replaces the enemy's malice with his love and kindness. He restores the soul from the damage that's been done by the evil one. He recovers the lost by his saving grace. My friends, do you want the grace of Jesus in exchange for your sins? What peace and relief it brings. What a huge blessing to know Christ cares for you personally and individually as if you were the only person on the whole planet. He loves you and will still send all of heaven to rescue the worst sinner. And He loves to save you from your sins. He longs to forgive you. That is His nature. He longs for you to overcome the enemy in your life. That too is His nature. He longs to restore you as his child and he wants to give you a home in his kingdom. And with all the heavenly love that he had, he kindly said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Please take note of what Jesus says. If there is one person that understands the human soul and its propensity to sin, it is Jesus. Humans love to sin. We're caught in the clutches of the enemy and we cannot help but sin unless we have the love of Jesus in our hearts. Jesus understands. He doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't lessen the gravity of sin. But he says, neither do I condemn thee. I don't condemn you for sinning. I have come to save you from the enemy. I have come to restore you into the image of God. We understand that we're guilty of sin. Jesus knows that we know this. We naturally think that Jesus will not forgive us if our sins are gross enough. He wants us to understand that all we need to do is come to Jesus and confess our sins and seek His forgiveness, and He will freely and abundantly pardon. Jesus acknowledges that the woman had sinned and that she is condemned to death for those sins, but He is sympathetic to her plight. He knows that she cannot overcome them herself. She needs His power in her life. Yet being guilty for the sin is not the emphasis of Jesus' message to her. The main point he is trying to get through to her is his love and forgiveness. Without it, she would be lost. But with it, she has everything, including eternal life. Jesus is kind to her. He gives her hope. Jesus also gives her a little counsel. Go and sin no more, he adds. With every command, Jesus provides power to fulfill it. We are hopelessly unable to fulfill his will, yet we must. Therefore, the only solution is that Jesus gives us His grace to overcome. 
It is grace from start to finish. Powerful grace. Essential grace. Grace is God's way of picking you up, dusting you off, and putting you on the path of life. It is grace that empowers the human agent to live for Jesus. When Jesus says, go and sin no more, he's talking about living grace. We're not just forgiven by grace. We are to live by grace. Grace isn't merely an act of legal justification, an act by which we are forgiven. Oh, no. It's the very act of grace to give you a life of victory. Without it, you cannot live righteously. Christ offers it to us and reaches down, restores us to his likeness so that we can live his character in our lives. Isn't that wonderful news? Praise the Lord for the righteousness of Christ. Our efforts are worthless, yet we must fulfill his will with our efforts. But in reality, it is only a cooperation with Christ that transforms the life by grace. You cannot overcome sin. That's impossible. It is only possible to overcome by the grace of Christ. Therefore, Christ has to live in you. And Christ will not condemn those who have sinned, but who repent and determine in their hearts to go and sin no more. He will not take advantage of us because of our former rebellion and wickedness. He will cast it into the depths of the sea and forget about it. It's the devil that keeps bringing it up before us to condemn us and make us feel as though we cannot be reconciled to God. Therefore, Christ's love and grace toward us in the remission of sins through His blood should be the prevailing argument with us to go and sin no more. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If Christ has forgiven you and restored you, why give the devil any reason to accuse you again? Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Christ forgives and cleanses us, he gives us a new heart. When we have a new heart, we no longer desire to sin. That leads us away from Satan's temptations. Notice that Christ lives in the victorious Christian. We are no longer to live for ourselves. We are no longer to live unto ourselves, but unto Christ. We live by his faith, not our own. It is his grace that restores by implanting his faith in our lives. Jesus calls on the prosecutors. Where are thine accusers, he says to the woman? Hath no man condemned thee? Christ knew where they were, but he asked this question that he might put them to shame, who did not want his righteous judgment. He also wanted to encourage her to resolve to live by his judgment. Paul says in this way in Romans 8.33. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. This wretched woman is now one of God's elect. Isn't that wonderful? He has turned her slavery to sin into freedom and righteousness. She is forgiven and at peace. Now she forgives her accusers. No man, Lord, she says. She does not point the finger at them in accusation. She does not triumph over their misfortune. She cannot because she has been forgiven much. She only loves Christ and so must we. We must love Jesus more than our own skin. 
We must love Jesus more than our own reputation. We must love Jesus more than our own vindication. The woman is so grateful for Jesus sparing her life and not condemning her that her heart is melted. She threw herself at Jesus' feet, sobbing out her grateful love with bitter tears, confessing her sins. She was free, and the relief was so great that she determined that she would never fall into that sin again. Her love was so full that she took his feet in her hands and thanked him over and over for what he had done for her. Listen to this powerful statement from Desire of Ages, page 462. This was to her the beginning of a new life, a life of purity and peace, devoted to the service of God. In the uplifting of this fallen soul, Jesus performed a greater miracle than in healing the most grievous physical disease. He cured the spiritual malady which is unto death everlasting. This penitent woman became one of his most steadfast followers. With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving mercy. Wow. Again, listen to this amazing description of Jesus' work of salvation from Desire of Ages, page 462. In his act of pardoning this woman and encouraging her to live a better life, the character of Jesus shines forth in the beauty of perfect righteousness. And while he does not palliate sin or lessen the sense of guilt, he seeks not to condemn but to save. The world had for this erring woman only contempt and scorn, but Jesus speaks words of comfort and hope. The sinless one pities the weakness of the sinner and reaches to her a helping hand. While the hypocritical Pharisees denounce, Jesus bids her, Go and sin no more. Then there is some counsel to us. It is not Christ's follower that, with averted eyes, turns from the erring, leaving them unhindered to pursue their downward course. Those who are forward in accusing others and zealous in bringing them to justice are often in their own lives more guilty than they. Men hate the sinner while they love the sin. Christ hates the sin but loves the sinner. This will be the spirit of all who follow him. Christian love is slow to censure, quick to discern penitence, ready to forgive, to encourage, and to set the wanderer in the path of holiness and to stay his feet therein. Friends, you can imagine how it is in heaven when a soul is restored to God. It's hard to imagine the heavenly choir singing the praises of Christ, but it's true. True salvation is so wonderful, so encompassing, so relieving that when it happens, all of heaven hears about it and rejoices over one sinner that repents. Listen to this from the Signs of the Times, April 3, 1884. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. In view of the glorious inheritance which may be his, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He may be poor, yet he possesses in himself a wealth and dignity that the world could never bestow. The soul, redeemed and cleansed from sin with all its noble powers dedicated to the service of God, is of surpassing worth. And there is joy in heaven in the presence of God and holy angels over one sinner that repents, a joy that is expressed in songs of holy triumph. Songs of holy triumph? Yes, that's right. You can have heaven singing over you. Repent and be converted, and Christ himself will sing with joy, and so will the Father. 
Here it is from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. It is the love of God toward him that converts the sinner. He reaches all the way down to us through Christ and touches our hearts with the very thing that we need to be melted. That's what Jesus did for that woman. Do you remember that Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles when he forgave and freed the woman of her sins? The Feast of Tabernacles was like a fitting prophetic symbol of the final freedom from sin when the earth is cleansed from its defilement by fire and is restored and recreated again in its pristine and original beauty. What a day that will be! Can you imagine what it will be like? Try to imagine this heavenly scene described in the book Selected Messages, Volume 1, pages 306 and 307. It's about the final proclamation that sin is vanquished. There is the throne, and around it the rainbow of promise. There are seraphim and cherubim. The angels circle round him, but Christ waves them back. He enters into the presence of his Father. He points to his triumph in this antitype of himself, the wave sheaf, those raised with him, the representatives of the captive dead who shall come forth from their graves when the trump shall sound. He approaches the Father, and if there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents, if the Father rejoices over one with singing, let the imagination take in this scene. Christ says, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O my God. I have completed the work of redemption. If thy justice is satisfied, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That's John 17, verse 24. And the voice of God is heard. Justice is satisfied. Satan is vanquished. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's Psalms 85, verse 10. The arms of the Father encircle the Son, and His voice is heard, saying, Let all the angels of God worship Him. That's Hebrews 1, verse 6. Look what it says next in John eight thirteen. Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you have Christ... You have His light in you. You follow Him in the light and you no longer walk in darkness or with the deeds of darkness. Listen carefully to this statement from John 3.19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The only condemnation that comes to men is because their deeds are evil and of darkness. They're under the control of the evil one. Have you ever noticed how much wickedness is done in darkness? Nightclubs operate at night, in the darkness. Prostitutes work after dark. We speak of the nightlife of the city, which is after the sun goes down. And thieves like dark because it gives them cover for their evil deeds. Even many of those evil things done in the daytime are still done carefully so that they will not be seen. Friends, do you want this freeing, forgiving love of Jesus in your life? Then surrender to Him. Let Him bring you into the light. Let Him place you in His care. Come before Him as you are, weak and sinful and repentant. He will not turn His back on you. He will forgive you. That is a certainty. 
His blood will cover you and you'll be free to live a life that's no longer subject to sin. Today, there are many that teach you that you cannot overcome your sins. But friends, in these last days, Jesus promises to find those who will give their all to Him and live righteously in this wicked generation. He wants to show the power of His mercy in your life, and He wants to demonstrate that power by giving you victory over your sins. You are my witnesses, He says. Let Him have your sinful life so He can replace it with His sinless life. God bless you as you find in Christ your salvation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus who gave himself that we might be free of sin. Thank you for loving us so much that you would empty heaven to save us. May we respond to your love by inviting you into our hearts that we may live according to your righteousness in the grace of Christ, we pray. Amen. Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of kings. Be thou thyself the answer to all my questionings. Live out thy life within me, in all things have thy The temple has been yielded and purified of sin. Let thy Shekinah glory now shine forth from within. And all the earth keeps silence, the body henceforth be. Thy silent, gentle servant Moved only as by Thee Its members every moment Held subject to Thou hast need 
me. Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of kings, be thou the glorious answer to all my questionings. Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of Kings. We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is called Live Out Thy Life Within Me, sung by Christian Berdahl, and is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Consecration. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Consecration CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our prophetic monthly intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, UN Secretary offers praise of Pope Francis. United Nations Secretary Ban Ki-moon offered strong praise of Pope Francis in an interview with Vatican Radio. The Pope is a man of humility and humanity, and he is a man of moral voice and purpose, said Ban particularly at a time in which this world is experiencing many conflicts, refugees, migration, human rights abuses, climate change, we really need such a strong moral voice as the Pope's. On this occasion, during which more than 150 heads of state government and the world are gathering, therefore you cannot expect any greater, more significant, and important gathering of the world's leaders, including the Pope, Bon added. I'm grateful for his compassionate leadership, for peace and humanity. Next, Turkey rising to be Middle East power broker. The recent deal with Iran on nuclear arms and six Western nations, led by the U.S., will increase tension and conflicts in the Middle East, not lessen them, and Turkey may stand to gain the most. Turkey is the largest economy in the Middle East and is strategically situated at the confluence of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. From 330 A.D. for more than 1,500 years, Turkey has been the center of powerful empires. Though Turkey has some converging interests with Iran, including its dependence on Iranian oil and control and or manipulation of the Kurds, they are rivals for power. They both use the Kurds to undermine the other. Both want dominance over the Arab region, and most Arabs want neither of them to rule them. The Islamic State provides Turkey with a number of problems. 
For one, the Kurds seem to be the most effective force fighting the Islamic State. And while the IS has emerged within Turkey itself, including operative cells and other activities. In addition, Turkey doesn't look kindly toward Iranian expansion in the Levant, which is, it sees as its own sphere of influence. Syria is another challenge. Turkey wants to get rid of the Assad government and has supplied and trained militants to fight Damascus. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia is alarmed by the potential expansion of Iranian influence in the region, and Iran is predominantly Shiite. And with Iraq no longer a bulwark against Iran's ambitions, the House of Saud is concerned that Iranian Shiites will stir up the large Shiite population living near its own massive oil fields. If Assad falls, it would deal a crippling blow to the Iranian influence in the region. So it's important to Saudi Arabia to support Sunni militants in Syria and provide them with arms to fight Assad. The U.S. attempt, along with five other powers, to rehabilitate Iran's international image coupled with Tehran's desires to expand its domain will lead to more conflict. The Iranian deal with Western powers means more war, not less, due to the complex and contradictory circumstances and interests in the region. Turkey, because of its geographical position, its economic strength, and its military interests ultimately places it in the fulcrum of Middle East power struggles as it deals with competitive interests with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and even Egypt. Turkey has also played an important part of fulfilling prophecy. In 1838, Millerite Josiah Litch calculated from Revelation 9 that on August 11, 1840, the Ottoman Empire would come to an end. The exact fulfillment of this prophecy gave substantial influence to William Miller and the Advent Movement. Now Turkey is again growing into a regional power. Pay attention as prophecy unfolds in amazing detail. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Genesis 16, verse 12. Next. The Revolution of Pope Francis Pope Francis knows that he's inciting and encouraging civil disobedience and rebellion of the masses against the world's super-rich capitalists. Politics be what they may, Francis is the only real political leader that matters this year. He's rallying people across the earth, both middle class and poor, to rise up in an economic revolution that could suddenly sweep the planet like the 1789 French Revolution. Capitalist ideology is on the wrong side of history and is fighting a no-win battle. Capitalism is rapidly dying because it has been sabotaged by greed and loss of a moral code. Since the Reagan Revolution, America's self-centered, consumer-driven, mutant capitalism lost its moral compass. Consequently, inequality exploded Income growth stagnated, and the poor keep getting poorer. Yet, since 2000, billionaires around the world have gone from 322 to 1,826 in 2015, with 11 trillionaire capitalist families predicted to control the planet by 2100. As Pope Francis' relentless socialist revolution accelerates, his message of the sacred rights for all people is intended to structurally change the global economy, as his recent trip to South America revealed. 
The future of humanity does not lie solely in the hands of great leaders, the great powers, and the elites, he said. The future is fundamentally in the hands of peoples and in their ability to organize. It is in their hands which can guide with humility and conviction this process of change. I am with you. In fact, Pope Francis is one of the world's greatest revolutionary leaders and will end up in the history books right there with Lenin and Marx, Mayo and Castro. He's obviously inciting revolution and wants civil disobedience and political insurrection. He's egging the poor into rebellion against a vastly outnumbered rich. He's out in front of the emerging global revolution, encouraging the masses, shouting battle cries. He is calling to replace capitalism with a new economic socialism, giving the poor sacred rights on par with the super-rich. So the media should stop mistaking Francis' congenial nature, his perpetual smile, dismissing his true intentions. His five key points are all socialist. Everyone has a sacred right to land, lodging, and labor. Humans, not capitalist profits, must be at the center of global economics. Billions worldwide cannot wait much longer for action. Revolutions begin with angry citizens, not politicians and philanthropists. And socialism is a moral obligation. If Pope Francis is successful in restructuring the global economy, he will have accomplished a major feat of global leadership and will rise to be queen of the earth, just as the Bible predicted. I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Revelation 18, verse 7. Next, slippery slope. It's time to legalize polygamy and polyamory. The Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage has started the United States on a slippery slope. The SCOTUS decision has helped activists achieve one of the central goals of social liberalism. What is the next advance? Now that the marriage definition isn't driven by gender alone, why should it be limited to two individuals, argues Frederick de Boer in Politico. The most natural advance next for marriage lies in legalized polygamy. During the debate over same-sex marriage, gay activists oppose the idea that legalizing same-sex marriage would lead to other types of marriage legalization, including polygamy. But that argument is illogical. Chief Justice John Roberts even mentioned it in his dissenting opinion. It is striking, he said, how much of the majority's reasoning would apply with equal force to the claim of a fundamental right to plural marriage. Polygamy is still a strong social taboo, yet the moral reasoning behind that is as legally weak as opposition to same-sex marriage, says DeBoer. Gay activists approve of any two consenting adults, sexual or romantic relationships, but oppose the formal legal recognition of those relationships. If my liberal friends recognize the legitimacy of free people who choose to form romantic partnerships with multiple partners, how can they deny them the right to the legal protections of marriage? Polygamy is a fact, wrote De Boer. People are living in group relationships today. The question is whether we will grant to them the same basic recognition we grant to other adults, that love makes marriage, and that the right to marry is exactly that, a right. Why the opposition from those who have no interest in preserving traditional marriage or forbidding polyamorous relationships? The answer? Short-term political need. 
Gay marriage activists did not want the legitimization of the argument that gay marriage will start the nation on the slippery slope to every other kind of relationship. That would have hurt the movement. In 2005, a denial of the right to group marriage stemming from political pragmatism made at least some sense. In 2015, after this ruling, it no longer does. The next horizon, argues DeBoer, is legal recognition of marriages between more than two partners. It's time to legalize polygamy. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, verse 28. Next, Russian and China collaboration threatens U.S. hegemony. China and Russia are cooperating in unprecedented ways to undermine the hegemony of the United States. A new Cold War is in progress. In almost every area, the Axis is operating against American and Western interests, including military buildups, aggressive trade and economic policies, including creating alternative international financial institutions, aggressive expansion of territorial claims, facilitating rogue regimes militarily and economically, aggressive cyber warfare and intelligence espionage and theft, indirectly aiding terrorist groups and standing together at the UN. The Axis exacerbates virtually every threat or problem facing the U.S. today. In 1969, the two nations were at war, but since 1989, when Mikhail Gorbachev visited China, the two nations have a growing strategic affinity. For sure, they have their rivalry, but their collaboration is unprecedented. Undermining U.S. hegemony will lead to war. See Matthew 24, verses 6 through 7. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.